Welcome to the Paraxel podcast, where we look at the issues, trends, and innovations shaping patient access to new drug therapies, because we're all driven by the same goal, to make life better for patients and improve their odds of survival. I'm Alberto Grignolo, Corporate Vice President at Paraxel. 2019 was a big year for precision medicine. FDA approved 27 precision medicine drugs, seven new molecular entities, and 20 expanded indications of previously approved drugs, compared to 25 such approvals in 2018 and 19 in 2017. These breakthroughs are important, specifically for patients who suffer from bladder cancer, breast cancer, cystic fibrosis, and Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and now have precision medicine options. Today, we're talking with Paraxel precision medicine experts Arlene Hughes and Angela Chu about the current state of precision medicine in drug development, what is happening today, and what they are most excited about for the future. We'll also ask the question, if precision medicine is so great, why isn't everyone doing it? We'll look at some of the challenges to this approach as well, particularly in biotech, where resources and timelines can be limited. I'll start with some introductions. Arlene Hughes, PhD, is a Senior Director of Translational Medicine, a core member of Paracel's Cell and Gene Therapy Working Group. Arlene partners with our regulatory consulting and access team, providing medical device and companion diagnostic consulting to clients. Arlene has nearly 30 years of experience in clinical development in biomarkers and genomic medicine across a wide range of therapeutic areas with a focus on neuroscience, oncology, and infectious diseases. Arlene came to Paracel five years ago after 24 years at GSK and its legacy companies. Welcome to the podcast, Arlene. Thank you, Alberto. Angela Chu is an MD, PhD, and Vice President of the Translational Medicine Group at Paracel. Angela is a core subject matter expert within Paracel's Oncology Center of Excellence and has over 20 years of experience in biomarker and genomic medicine with a focus on oncology and immuno-oncology. She also came to us from GSK and previously Procter & Gamble. Angela, delighted you're with us today. Thank you, Alberto. Pleasure to be here. First off, why don't you both tell us a little about your careers? How did you get involved in clinical trials and in precision medicine? Arlene, would you like to start? Yes, I'd be happy to, Alberto. I started in my pharma career in clinical development, actually preparing the clinical sections of investigational new drug applications, or INDs. I designed clinical trials, conducted them, and reported the results in clinical study reports across all phases of clinical development, from first in humans to phase four um, clinical trials. I loved it, and I had survived multiple mergers and acquisitions and reorganizations, and I decided I wanted to become more, gain expertise in other scientific disciplines. So I joined the genetics group at GlaxoWellcome, and my first genetic project was really exciting. It was to determine why some patients who receive the antiretroviral HIV medicine, abacavir, develop a hypersensitivity reaction, which can be, if untreated, life-threatening or fatal, and why other patients don't. Now, what we knew was that the incidence of abacavir hypersensitivity was higher in European or Caucasian populations than it was in patients of African ancestry. 
We also knew that a back of your hypersensitivity was an immune reaction. And so we thought that genetics might play a role in risk of a back of your hypersensitivity in patients living with HIV disease. And we discovered that a specific genetic variant in an immune gene is a complicated name, HLA-B5701, was actually associated with a back of your hypersensitivity risk. And the frequency of this genetic variant in European populations was higher than in African populations. And it was um, consistent with the higher frequency of the adverse event in European patients. So we confirmed the finding. We conducted a clinical trial to demonstrate the clinical utility of prospective screening for this genetic variant. And you fast forward today, and um, a back of your product labeling and clinical practice guidelines state that physicians should prospectively screen for this genetic variant. And if patients carry this variant, they should be put on a different HIV therapy regimen. As a consequence of this prospective screening, the incidence of a back of your hypersensitivity has significantly decreased and has tremendously improved the benefit risk of a back of ear and a back of ear containing products. So we, we think this is a great example of precision medicine in action. Thank you, Arlene. Angela, what about you? What is your story? Uh, sure. I, I started my career as a physician specializing in genetic disease. At the time, uh, there were very limited understanding of disease-causing genes, many times unknown. So there's even sparse therapeutic options for treating patients. It was a very challenging field, especially considering there are many genetic diseases fall under rare disease categories and often impact pediatric patients. So that's kind of drove me to genetic and medical research in exploring underlying disease pathogenesis. I was honored to be part of a very prominent scientific team at Columbia Medical Center to work on the first human genome project at the time, taking part in sequencing and analyzing our first human genome. So for that project that I was co-leading, we sequenced and discovered new tumor suppressor genes causing several blood cancers, including CLL. And later on, from mining and analyzing the human genome data using computation approach, we deciphered and identified the disease-causing gene for ICF syndrome, which is a very rare but devastating immunodeficiency genetic disorder. So that is a breakthrough finding as it's the first time to characterize such rare genetic disease for ICF. So all those exciting findings improved our understanding, the underlying disease-causing genes, and also the discovery of new drug targets. At the same time, it made me think, so what's next? How would this translate into new therapeutic options to treat or reverse the disease course and ultimately deliver effective treatment to patients? So this is really the driver for me to get into the drug development industry and precision medicine career. And since then, I have been uh, committed to biopharma R&D and translational medicine for 20 years across therapeutic areas, ranging from discovery, preclinical, and all the way through clinical development area. 
Well, thank you both for sharing your interesting backgrounds in this very exciting and evolving field. Um, at the top of the podcast, I discussed the increase of precision medicine approvals uh, in 2019. Let's go back in history for a moment. From your perspective, is the landscape of precision medicine different today than we originally thought 10 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago? Arlene, what are your thoughts? Yes, the landscape is quite different. Um, one area where I think we've made tremendous progress is in the area of technology. I can remember when we did the Abacavir hypersensitivity project nearly 20 years ago that we were having to decide, do we genotype a lot of genetic variants in a few samples, or do we genotype a few genetic variants in a lot of samples because of cost considerations? Today, there are commercially available genotyping chips where you can genotype up to a million genetic variants in a single sample for less than $50. And now we can actually sequence sections of a person's genome for hundreds of dollars. Now, I worked in the genetics group at GSK for a long time, and so obviously I have a fondness for genetic biomarkers and precision medicine. But over the years, I've come to appreciate that the importance of non-genetic biomarkers as predictors of response. So some of those examples of non-genetic biomarkers could include high eosinophil blood counts as a predictor of, re of response to biologics used to treat respiratory diseases that through the uh, interleukin-5 uh, pathway. There are serum biomarkers, autoantibodies, complement levels that can be used to predict response in immune disorders such as lupus. As Angela has said, you know, precision medicine has not only impacted drug development, but also drug discovery and disease diagnosis allowing scientists to use molecular characteristics to define diseases and moving diagnosis of disease away from clinical signs and symptoms. So I'm interested in Alzheimer's disease. And as an example, the, there's a, there are now consensus criteria to diagnose Alzheimer's disease and other um, dementia disorders, as well as the disease precursors to Alzheimer's. As you know, the Alzheimer's disease field has been fraught with drug development failures. And so can we use molecular and biomarker um, criteria? Can we treat earlier stages of the disease, the more prodromal phases, and then hopefully we will be able to make some progress in developing effective treatments for these devastating diseases. Thank you, Arlene. Angela, what is your historical perspective? And more specifically, uh, is the state of play today meeting the expectations of the past, or is it even exceeding the expectations of maybe a decade ago or two decades ago? Angela, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think the landscape definitely has transformed compared to 10 to 20 years ago. So looking back, I would say the completion of the first human genome project right about 20 years ago was immensely important for precision medicine. It turns out to be the beginning of the new wave of knowledge and also the key driver to our today's modernized clinical trials to really take advantage of the massive amount of data generated by the molecular profile from different tiers, including genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, and biomarkers from cellular or metabolomic levels, and so on. 
Without that blueprint, the precision medicine would remain as a concept. So I think that really also opens the open opportunity for new drug development. Understanding the disease genes, the diversity, and the dynamics at DNA RNA protein level, as well as their connectivity in the context of pathway and regulatory pathway networks, really allows for the discovery of new target, new biomarker, and even new definition of diseases. And in turn, to innovate our thinking about precision medicine trial today. So, as example for precision medicine today, not only it shift the paradigm from one size fits For a given disease at an individual patient level, but also it reshapes a new paradigm that one drug fits more. So more here, I mean more diseases with a much deeper understanding of the biology, disease, and the genome. We can now repurpose a drug from treating one disease to multiple diseases, therefore maximize its benefit to the right targeted patient across across indications. Yeah, clearly, a great deal of progress has occurred, as you both have pointed out, in the last couple of decades. And Angela, as you just mentioned, the pace of innovation and advance seems to be actually accelerating, which is very exciting. So, let's get to that.、Uh, I'd like to ask you both: What do you see as the biggest area of potential in precision medicine going forward at this accelerated pace? Arlene,、uh, your thoughts, perhaps. Yes, thank you, Alberto. I think where we need to go is, and, and we're doing it already, is starting to integrate different types of biomarkers into、uh, understanding variation in clinical response. I think、um, an area that we need additional resource in is identification of scientists who can combine and analyze and interpret these different types of biomarker and clinical data. To gain insights in、um, how patients respond to medicine, I think the other area that I'm really interested in is seeing how precision medicine discoveries can translate into patient care.、Um, we know that there are genetic biomarkers that can predict response to a number of important cardiovascular therapeutics. And we also know that some major medical centers, for example, in the United States, Vanderbilt University and the Cleveland Clinic and others, are actually building prospective genetic testing of these important genetic variants into medical care, so that these data get incorporated into electronic health records. And they're building prompts, so when a physician is ready to make a prescribing decision. He or she will get sort of a, you know a reminder about what the precision medicine recommendations are. It could be that maybe for this patient you use a different drug, or you may alter the dose from the standard dose that you might originally plan to prescribe. And I think one of the things that's intriguing about this is that they realize that. In order to embed precision medicine into medical practice, they need to collect outcome data. So they're doing things like finding out how the patient did on the therapeutic. If they chose to ignore the genetic recommendation, why? How did the patient do? So I think this is going to complement the data that we get in very controlled clinical trials. 
to the real-world um, implementation of precision medicine? Well, Arlene, let me ask you, are we coming closer to the time where all of us should really get our genome sequenced and be part of our uh, hospital records, for example, our personal medical history? Does it make sense to do that, not only because it's much more inexpensive than it used to be, but also because our doctor can actually use that information to our advantage? Is that the reality today? Alberta, that's a great question. I think part of the challenge is you need um, skilled scientists to be able to take a lot of that raw data and translate it into act clinically actionable decisions. Because, you know, a physician may only be with a patient for 10 to 15 minutes. And so he or she doesn't have time to you know, do a literature search and figure out what that genetic variant, how that genetic variant should impact that patient's care. I don't think that, at least in the U.S., I don't think the U.S. healthcare system is ready for um, incorporating all of our genomes into our electronic health record, but that could change in the future. I mean, the... Okay, fair enough. Thank you, Arlene. Angela, what are you most excited about in terms of the potential of precision medicine in the coming years? Sure, yeah, and also I appreciate Arlene's comments on this. Just to add, um, as the engine of the precision medicine, I think the biggest potential lies in uh, continuously leveraging the massive data to approach and drive precision medicine. So for the current precision medicine landscape, I often use, I like to use the analogy of a swimming pool. If we consider the old one-size-fits-all convention as a big swimming pool, right, without any land. So in nowadays precision medicine, era, the pool is now being divided into different swimming lens with each precision medicine targeting a particular lens, namely a subgroup of you know, patient population as guided by the information from genomic or other molecular markers. So using the same swimming pool analogy for the next generation of precision medicine, in my mind, it will be a break, re-break of those swimming lens and rebuild an elastic network by incorporating all these additional valuable data dimensions that coming from the real world setting. On top, on top of the molecular profiling, the clinical data we currently have, and to really enrich the real-world experience data. So this opportunity, you know, to learn from both genomics and real-world data is will be the core for what makes the next wave of precision medicine impact. So I think, you know, with a deep understanding of this robust data network connectivity and also the accompanied decision-making tools, it will really help transform not just the clinical trial conduct, but also patient care from today's practice and to fully realize the precision medicine potential in the future. Okay. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, let's move to what I would like to think of as kind of a wrinkle uh, in, in the whole situation around precision medicine. This, this all sounds very encouraging, as you both have described very competently and specifically, but there's a catch. Um, many companies are not using precision medicine approaches to drug development. So I'd like to ask you both, why is that? Do you still see some companies shying away from this approach? What might be the reason? Arlene, what do you think? Thanks, Alberto. Yes, some companies are shying away from precision medicine approaches. And one reason is the perceived cost. 
We know that not all patients respond in the same way to a given medicine. A treatment may be efficacious in some patients and cause adverse drug reactions in other patients. Large pharmaceutical companies are not as obviously as financially constrained as biotech companies, and sm some small biotech companies may view the collection of biomarker samples in a clinical trial as more of a nice-to-have or an unnecessary expense, or may feel that the collection of biomarker samples will undermine the benefit risk of their medicinal product, and this is definitely incorrect. I mean, it's important to remember that biomarkers don't change how unselected patients respond to a given medicinal products. I mean, the response is the response. Being able to overlay the biomarker data onto the clinical trial data will allow scientists to gain important in insights as to why patients have responded in a different way. I mean, we know the global regulatory authorities are aware of this. And they're increasingly asking companies to use the biomarker samples um, to, un to explain variation and clinical response. You're saying the cost is a factor and a deterrent, but it shouldn't be, in, in your opinion. I believe that's what you said, correct? I, I think that's correct. I think the cost should not be a deterrent because what we can do in clinical trials is we can collect and often bank those samples as an insurance policy. So it's really the cost of collection and processing and storage. And then that way, if there are no questions about variation in clinical response, then the the samples can remain in the freezer. However, if there are questions, then you've got those samples at hand in order to do experimentation and generate data that help you, you know, understand the clinical trial results. Okay. Is there another deterrent uh, to the use of precision medicine approaches, Arlene? Yes, and I think Angela has touched on this, is that, you know, especially for some small biotech companies, they may not feel that they have that precision medicine expertise. You know, precision medicine trials, and if you generate biomarker data, you can generate an enormous amount of biomarker data. So you need to have experts who can handle these large data sets, organize them, analyze them, who have... Um, disease-specific spe expertise that may um, allow them to interpret the data. And this is where I think Parexcel can help because we have that expertise and offer that to companies every day. The other thing about biomarkers is if a biomarker turns out to be essential for the safe and effective use of a medicinal product, then the FDA expects that the biomarker test be either FDA approved or cleared. And be then that specific test is known as a companion diagnostic. And that um, companion diagnostic test needs to be available at the time of medicine launch. Many drug developers have no idea about how to develop medical devices or diagnostic tests. And I think that's where we can really help them. We have experts in the regulatory and 
Access Consulting Group at Parexcel, who are former leaders at FDA, including the Center for Devices and Radiological Health, who are the, um, the group at FDA that reviews medical devices and companion diagnostics. And they work with our team, Biomarkers in Genomic Medicine and Global Medical, and we can give clients our best expertise and advi- scientific advice. How can biotech companies determine if precision medicine is the right approach for their development product? Um, Angela, maybe some thoughts from you about this. Yes, uh, I think uh, this is really uh, driven by multiple assessment component, including science, including medical need, regulatory paths, market access, and more uh, more uh, other con- considerations, including patient as well. So in general, it's important to evaluate the need at the very beginning and develop a well-crafted strategy. So I'd like to highlight perhaps a few points to consider. First, the, fun- uh, the fundamental part would be the science-driven. And as always, the devil is in the details, such as the in-depth understanding of your target, your drug mechanism of action. Is it targeting uh, single or multiple genes? What are the mutation types? Is that fusion or overexpression or certain point mutations? Is there a good understanding of the target indication and the target patient population? What is a good biomarker do we know? Or what is the validity or predictivity of this biomarker? So those are all the questions we need to start, you know, putting together from the science part. And secondly, there's a crucial patient component. For example, when assigning patients to treatment cohorts, is it ethically appropriate that's a selective, um, that's a selected surrogate end marker are clinically meaningful, irrespective of how treatment is allocated based on the biomarker features. And is there potential risk derived from testing the therapeutic approach of biomarker, especially invasive tests that will also need to be taken into consideration? Thirdly, there are also strategic considerations for biotech companies as well, such around understanding the need from key stakeholders, regulators, investors, health providers and payers, and, and so on, which will help assess the approach and optimize the development program to save time and resources. So I want to point out that this is an area that we at Paraxel are very engaged in, which is to help our biotech sponsors to evaluate the approach and develop strategic planning. For example, we do have designated oncology center of excellence that combines a core team of experts representing from medical, genomic biomarker, regulatory, biostat to provide such early advisory service for biotech companies as part of their drug development program, including the use of adaptive trial designs, real-world data, and precision medicine approach. So same is true for other therapeutic areas, such as rare disease, cell and gene therapy areas. We work with our biotech partners to map out the development journey, identify the potential risk, and how to avoid them. So, Angela, given the three pillars you mentioned, the science-driven, patient at the center, strategic considerations, what do you think needs to be done to make precision medicine more commonly used in biotech? And I will ask Arlene the same question, but Angela, perhaps you could go first. What needs to be done? 
Yes, so as uh, discussed earlier, one of the key hurdles for precision medicine adoption is the lack of skilled workforce. So biotech companies, in my mind, has a huge, uh, I would say, um, advantage position in innovating drug development, including precision medicine, with their agility, flexibility, and all the great innovations ranging from drug, new drug targets, newly designed drug, new technologies for drug delivery, and engineered cell or gene therapies. So on the other side, from our experience working with biotech companies, oftentimes they face the common challenge of translating this great science, great technology, and drug product with great potentials effectively and efficiently into clinical development. So how to help them you know, tackle this challenge. One solution would be to partner with um, CROs, for example, who have the skilled or specialized workforce needed for precision medicine trial development and, and execution. So to help address this hurdle, Paraxel also has a designated biotech function to help augment such gap capabilities and optimize the workforce for biotech companies. Thank you, Angela. Arlene, anything you'd like to add to Angela's comments on how to maybe make precision medicine more appealing to biotech companies? Thanks, Alberto. I'd be glad to comment. I mean, I think, you know, understandably, some biotech companies are focused on reaching their next milestone, whether it be funding for their next clinical trial or selling the rights to their investigational medicine to another company. And we can understand this, but because Parexcel has the experience of taking medicines to regulatory approval and reimbursement by payers, which is a really important component that we haven't talked about very much yet. And I think what we also have to keep in mind is getting drug approval is not the be-all and the end-all. You have to work with the payers. You have to understand what data the payers are going to want to make um, reimbursement decisions. You know, I think the beauty of precision medicine is we can generate critical data that a client can take to a payer and say, we have confidence this medicine is going to work well in this group of patients. And then I think that will help secure reimbursement and bring not only an important new medicine to patients, but value to the, um, the company. So I guess you're saying that the payers need to be persuaded of the value of reimbursing a drug that was developed with a precision medicine approach and also the value of paying for a companion diagnostic that inevitably has to uh, be prescribed together with a precision medicine drug. Is that the message essentially, Arlene? Well, I think it is. You know, I think payers will um, reimburse for companion diagnostics if the use of the test is in included in um, approved product labeling or learned um, disease treatment guidelines. But I think that the use of companion diagnostic tests actually saves the um, the payer money because you will be paying for medicines for a patient population who's most likely to benefit from that medicine. Right. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation, a very interesting conversation, I have to say. I want to thank you both. Clearly, uh, there is excitement uh, in the field. There's still much work to be done, but what you've described is very encouraging for industry as well as, importantly, for patients. So I thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. Arlene, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Alberto. And Angela, thank you, you as well. 
Thank you, Alberto. Thank you for having me. I am Alberto Grignolo, and this has been the latest edition of the Paracel podcast. To learn more from experts like Arlene and Angela, listen to more of our podcasts on Paracel.com, Google Play, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. After listening, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review this episode. See you next time.